Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. I want to talk about living in the new world. Sunday morning, we looked at chapter 8 and talked about a new beginning and how Noah and his family, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives came off the boat. And they had a fresh start. They had a new beginning. And tonight we're going to see as they begin to live out their new life and how they start living in the new world. You have a copy of God's Word, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. That's all we'll be able to cover tonight. Three things that we'll notice from this text. But if you have a copy of God's Word, we'll read these seven verses. It's on your handout as well. But let's look beginning at verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now if that sounds familiar, it's what God said to Adam and Eve. Then verse 2 says, The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you as I gave the green plants. I've given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and your blood. I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. I want you just to take a moment and think about Noah's emotional state and his state of mind as he gets off the ark for the first time. He had seen firsthand the terrifying judgment of God upon the whole earth. He'd felt the volcanic eruption of the subterranean waters and the torrential downpour of a worldwide storm that lasted for 40 days and nights. He'd been cooped up in the ark for approximately 370 days knowing that he and his family, only eight people, were the only living survivors left on the earth. Now think about that for a moment. He gets off the ark and he knows that he, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws are the only people left on the face of the earth. He steps out on some mountain peak, the mountains of Ararat, and what he sees has to be horrifying. He sees the utter devastation of the earth. He sees a barren earth with debris scattered all over the surface. Here and there are bones that had not been buried by the erosion from the receding waters. And then most likely, he saw water still rushing and receding from the valleys below. But immediately he turned to God in worship. And I talked about that on Sunday morning, how immediately he builds an altar and he begins to make sacrifice to God and he begins to offer praise and worship to Jehovah. But here's the thing about his sacrifice. He didn't just offer one animal, but he offered dozens of animals, one of every kind of species of animal. He was so thankful to God for saving him that he lifted up his heart to God time and time again. He did what genuine believers have often done. He recommitted and re-evaluated his life and he gave himself to God and begged God to forgive his sins and to accept his praise of heart to Him. 
But there was one difference, however, between Noah's worship and all of us who have succeeded him. Noah was driven to worship God because he had been an eyewitness of the awesome power and terrifying judgment of God. He was stricken with an intense fear and reverence for God unparalleled in human history. This was Noah's emotional state. This was his state of mind. He and his family were the only survivors on the earth. The earth was barren. It was totally devastated. He didn't have any idea what lay ahead. The future was uncertain. And he probably felt like many of us would have felt. Insecure, restless, unsure, a little hesitant, wondering and questioning, what am I going to do now? And as I've already stated, he did what we should do. He turned to God. Amen. When we don't know what lies before us and we don't know what to do next, the best thing to do is we turn to God. And that's what he did. He began to worship God and he approached God because he didn't know what to do. And here's the thing. God responded. God knew Noah's needs. God knew Noah's state of mind. God knew Noah's fear and uncertainty. And God met Noah and God instructed him and God guided him. And that's the subject of our passage before us, Noah and the new beginning. And so tonight we're going to talk about how Noah began living in the new world. And I want to give you three things that God did for Noah as he started his new life in the new world. First of all, I want us to see that God blessed Noah. As Noah began his new journey, as Noah began his new life in the new world, the first thing that God did for him is that God blessed him. That's what we see in verse number 1. God blessed Noah and his sons. The word bless, it means to invoke divine favor, often implying a positive disposition or kind actions toward the recipient. The first thing God does is pronounce a blessing on Noah and his family. In other words, God assured Noah and his family of his goodwill and his gracious intentions concerning them. Here's what Matthew Henry said in his commentary. God will graciously bless, that is, do well for those who sincerely bless, that is, speak well of him. End of quote. God blessed Noah. And here's the lesson for us. All of our blessings come from God. Anything that we have, anything that we have received, or anything that we will ever receive, it comes from God. Here's what John Corson said in his commentary. God blessed Noah, for in building an altar, Noah had blessed God. So if you choose to bless the Lord by sacrificing to Him like Noah, you will be blessed. For God will be a debtor to no man. You will always get back more than you give. End of quote. Listen, when we choose to bless God, when we choose to offer up our praise and our worship and our sacrifice to God, God will in turn bless us. God is the giver. God is the blesser. Blessings comes from the Lord. You see, God may use other people's hands and God may work through other individuals, but God does the blessing. Amen? We don't bless ourselves. Any blessing we get comes from God. He's the source. He's the provider. He is the one that blessings flow from. He is the giver of every good thing. 
James 1.17 says, Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With Him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. But here's the question, what does it mean to be blessed? Because if you ask some people, it's all about prosperity. If you ask some people, what does it mean to be blessed? It's all about having a big wallet. It's all about having a big pocketbook. It's all about having a great big financial checking account. But here's the thing, it's more than prosperity. It's more than financial blessings. It's more than money. It's all about being blessed spiritually. Sometimes it's about being full of the Spirit, full of God and walking with Him, knowing Him. Yes, sometimes it's being blessed financially, but sometimes it's just knowing that God is there and God is with me and God has touched me and God has strengthened me. That even if I don't have all the world has to offer, I have Him and I am. Am blessed. Amen. You see, it can refer to temporal blessings, but it can also refer to spiritual blessings. You see, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So, spiritual blessings, but there's also physical blessings. Let me give you some scripture. Genesis 24. Verse 35, The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become rich. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female slaves, camels and donkeys. So he can give us financial blessings. 2 Samuel 6, 11, The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. Exodus 23, 25, Worship the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. Look at that. He'll bless your bread and your water. In fact, think about the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. It said they spoiled the Egyptian, but guess what? Their clothes didn't wear out. The shoes on their feet didn't wear out. In fact, think about this. Somehow as they grew, their clothes grew with them. Their shoes grew with them. It didn't wear out. Somehow God had a way of expanding their clothes and expanding their shoes. That's how God provided. He blessed them. He said, I will remove illnesses from you. Matthew 6, 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. God is a blesser. That's the very first thing that God did for Noah. He blessed him. In fact, write one more Scripture down here on your, on your notes that you can go back and read sometime. But Psalm 103 It says, My soul praise the Lord, and all that is within me praise His holy name. My soul praise the Lord, and do not forget all His benefits. He forgives all your sin. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with goodness. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. Man, He blesses us. That's Psalm 103, verse 1 through 5. He blesses us. He gives us good things. Amen? I believe God wants to bless His people. I believe God wants to pronounce His favor on us. God wants to open doors for His people. And that's what He can do. He can open doors that no man can shut. And when He shuts doors, no man can open it. That's what God does. God blesses His people. In fact, let me say this. Without His blessing, what could you accomplish? 
What could Noah have accomplished without the blessing of God? Nothing. And that's the way it is with us. Without the blessing of God, without the favor of God being on our lives, we could do absolutely nothing. But here's the second thing I want us to see that God did. God instructed Noah. In other words, Noah didn't just get off the boat and God say, okay, Noah, go do your own thing. But God gave Noah some instructions. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just leave us to ourselves? But God gives us instructions. God gives us guidance that when we try to go do our own thing, God wants to lead us and guide us and keep us on the right path. Look there again at verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah is basically being told, you got to start over, Noah. you got to start over. We know that's what God told Adam and Eve. Hey, you got to be fruitful and multiply. Now notice here that God doesn't tell Noah like He told Adam and Eve, hey, you're going to have dominion over the earth. Originally, that's what God told Adam and Eve. Hey, you're going to subdue the earth. You're going to have dominion. God doesn't tell him that here. Why? Because sin's now in the earth. And Adam lost that dominion because he disobeyed. Who has that dominion now? Satan had that dominion now because they disobeyed. But he's still supposed to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They have the responsibility of repopulating the earth. How would you like to have that responsibility? But that's what they're told. That's their mission. That's their purpose. This is the instruction, Noah. Go fill the earth. To put it in our language, go make babies. Fill the earth. Repopulate it. That's your instruction. And then you get to verse 2 through verse 4, and God gives them some instructions on how they're supposed to eat. He gives them some instructions on their diet. Look at verse 2 to 4. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you as I... Gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Apparently before the flood, the relationship between man and animals was different. Man had dominion, man had authority. And originally when God first created the animals of man, there seemed to be no savagery among animals. Apparently animals got along, they didn't fight, they they didn't try to kill each other, they didn't try to tear each other apart. And we also see that man nor animal didn't eat each other. Man wasn't hunting animals. Animals wasn't hunting after man. Animals wasn't hunting each other. They lived side by side in peace and harmony. And apparently they had affection for each other. When it come time for Adam to name the animals, they came to him, he named them. And there didn't seem to be any animosity or any kind of fierceness between the animals and Adam. When it come time for the animals to get on the ark, there didn't seem to be any kind of, any kind of fierceness there. They came, got on the boat, and everything was peaceful. 
Now man was the ruler. He was the dominating force. He was the leader. That's how God ordained it. But you notice something after the fall, after the corruption of man on the world. Animals now live in a world of savagery and they have to struggle for food and they have to fight for survival against other animals. You see that in the animal kingdom now. That there is this hierarchy in the animal kingdom and it's the top dog on top who usually wins out. Right? But not only that, the relationship between animals and man has been corrupted by the fall. In fact, man would probably have been devoured and done away with a long time ago by the animal world if not for one thing. In the new world order, God put a fear of man inside the animals. That way when animals see man, they run. And had they not had that fear, they probably would tore men apart and ate man. But God put a fear and a dread of man inside of them. That wasn't there before. So there's a new order of things now. You see it in the text. That the, hey, the fear of you is going to be inside of animals now. That's what God said. There's this natural instinct within animals to shrink and draw back from man. You think about it. Listen, you go out here and you see a deer. And you're not just going to walk up on a deer. Because there is an instinct there that I've got to run. And unless you walk up on an animal that has got rabies or something like that, its instinct is to run. But before the fall, before the flood, I believe you could have walked up to animals and probably petted them and walked along with them. But something happened because of the corruption and the fall and the wickedness. Something changed in the natural order of things. Now, Fallen man does have dominion and supremacy over the animal world in the new order. But here's the thing. It's based on fear and terror, not harmony and affection. It changed. Man now rules the animal world, but it's by fear, it's not affection. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says this, The horse and ox patiently submit to the bridle and yoke, and the sheep is done both before the shearer and before the butcher. For the fear and dread of men are upon them. Those creatures that are in a way hurtful to us are restrained. Though now and then man may be hurt by some of them, they do not combine together to rise up in rebellion against man. What is it that keeps wolves out of our towns and lions out of our streets and confines them to the wilderness but this fear and dread? End of quote. It's fear. That's why they run away. That's, why, that's what keeps them off the streets. It's fear and dread of man. But, I'll, uh, so, but here's the thing. Why is there this fear of animals in man? I believe part of it is found in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. Every living creature will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. Prior to the flood, apparently man ate fruits and vegetables. Go back to Genesis 1 verse 29 30. I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I've given every green plant for food. That's saying that by the meat and I, I, I've given you the, the green plant for food. Genesis 2, 15, 17. 
God took the man, placed him in the garden of Eden to work it, watch over it. The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you'll certainly die. According to these verses, I believe man must have been a vegetarian. You eat fruits, vegetables. But now we see God's going to change their diet. Why? Maybe because of the flood somehow changed the, uh, the ecological atmosphere. Something took place when the flood came that changed the surface of the ground to where it wasn't as agriculturally productive and something in the atmosphere changed it to where now God says, hey, you've got permission now to eat meat. And so here's the thing. If man can now hunt animals... Animals now need this fear, this instinct that, hey, I need to run from man. If he's going to come after me with a bow, if he's going to come after me with a knife, if he's going to come and try to put me on his plate to eat me, I need this fear and this dread to run away. I need to hide. And so things begin to change. God also commands Noah that if animals are eaten, he has to have a proper respect for the blood. That blood represents the life of the animal. In other words, he's telling him, hey, don't be eating no bloody meat. Don't be drinking the blood. You've got to have a proper respect for the blood. The blood represents the life. Look at Leviticus 17.11. The life of a creature is in the blood. Deuteronomy 12.23. Don't eat the blood since the blood is the life. You must not eat the life with the meat. So he tells them there's a certain way if you're going to eat meat, you got to eat it the right way. Don't be eating bloody meat. Don't be drinking the blood. you got to eat it the right way. Now the importance of the idea of blood in the Bible is shown by how often the word is used. In the New King James Version, it's used 424 times in 357 separate verses. Blood was a sign of the mercy for Israel at the first Passover. How many remember when the children of Israel were going to be brought out of Egypt when the death angel saw the blood on the doorpost? He passed over. Blood's important. Blood sealed God's covenant with Israel. Blood sanctified the altar. Blood set aside the priest. Blood made atonement for God's people. Listen, if they showed up at the temple, they had to have a sacrifice. Blood had to be shed. Blood sealed the new covenant. Blood justifies us. Blood brings redemption. Blood brings peace with God. Blood cleanses us. Blood gives entrance to God's holy place. Blood sanctifies us. Blood enables us to overcome Satan. Listen, the theme or topic of blood runs throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And as I said, blood stands for life. So I want you to think about this. It was the blood of Jesus shed for us that gives us eternal life. The life is in the blood. And when Jesus shed His blood, it provides life eternal for us. So think about that. It was His blood that was shed that gives us salvation. It was His blood that was shed that gives us redemption. It was His blood that was shed that redeems us and cleanses us from our sin. His blood was as of a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The blood's important. Amen? And anytime you see blood in the Bible, it's always pointing to the blood of Jesus. Amen? But I want to point out a lesson concerning God's instructions because... We need to be people who learn how to follow God's instructions. Amen? The instructions that were given to Noah were given to him so that he could be successful 
in the new world. Could you imagine had Noah not followed what God told him to do? Do you think Noah would have lasted all that long had he not heeded what God said? You see, Noah, he's about to start over. He needed direction. He needed guidance. He's living in a brand new world. He's living in a time of uncertainty. He's about to venture out. A lot of hesitancy, a lot of unknowns. He needs to know exactly what God wants him to do. He's starting a new chapter in life. And God's giving him the instructions he needs to make it and be successful. And here's the thing. Noah has been obedient so far. He doesn't need to stop being obedient now. Amen? God told him to build an ark and he built an ark through the specs that God gave him. And he needs to obey God now. He needs to go be fruitful. He needs to hunt animals and he needs to eat it the way God tells him to eat it. He needs to be obedient to God. And here's the thing. If he'll follow God's instructions, he'll live the life that God intended for him to live. And here's what I want to say to us. God has given us His Word. This is God's roadmap. This is God's guidebook for us to follow. And if we'll follow God's instructions, we'll live the life that God intended for us to live. There's so many people that say, Pastor, I, I, I can't live the blessed life and I can't follow the will of God and I can't do what God wants me to do. And here's my question. Are you living by the instructions that God has given you? Well, preacher, I don't want to live according to that. that that's outdated and that's, that, that, that's, not, that, that, that's not modern in 2018. Well, here's the thing. If you want to live the life that God intended you to live, you've got to follow the instructions that God has given Amen? His Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This will never steal you wrong if you'll follow it. Amen? If we will read it and follow it, it'll lead us in the right path. It'll lead us in the right way. But guess what? We've also got the Holy Spirit living inside of us that Jesus said He'll guide us into all truth. He'll lead us the right way. He'll lead us down the right path. Just as God instructed Noah, God wants to instruct us. God wants to guide us. The the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And He delights in His way. God wants to lead us in what's best for our lives. And so when it comes to stepping out into different areas, when it comes to stepping out into things that are uncertain and unknown, if you'll listen to God and heed what God says, God will lead you the right way. When it comes time for for Tanya to seek a new job and what she ought to do, listen, we prayed about it and said, God, is this what you want? And we put it in God's hand and we did our best to follow Him. And God is working everything out. But here's the thing I really want us to focus on when it comes to God's instruction. You've got to be involved in His mission and His purpose. When God told Noah to be fruitful and multiply, that was the mission, that was the purpose. And here's the thing, we're not here on this earth to do what we want to do. We're here on this earth to do what God has called us to do. We've only got enough time on this earth to do what God has put us here to do. And it's not to put more money in the bank. It's not to build bigger homes and to drive fancy cars. It's to do what God has called us to do. It's to go out and build the kingdom of God. It's to go out and spread the name of Jesus and make Him famous in the earth. It's to do what God has called us to do. Let me ask you, are you living on purpose? Are you living on purpose? Are you fulfilling the mission that God has put you here for? 
You see, our lives are to be lived for the glory and honor of, honor of God. Our lives are to be lived on purpose. Not just wasted away. Not just floundering around doing what we want to do. But God, I'm here to live for You. But there's one more thing I want us to look at tonight. I've got 20 minutes to get it. God established government. God established government. Three things in the Bible God established. He established marriage and the family. That goes together. He established the church. And God established government. You mean to tell me government's not man's idea? No, it's God's. There is no authority except what God gives. And I can give you a Bible for it. And we're going to get to it. But there is no governing authority except what God gives and what God ordains. That's why we ought to pray for our leaders. Look at verse 5 through 7. I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and your blood. I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Warren Wiersbe had this to say in his commentary. He said, thus far mankind didn't have a very good track record when it came to caring for one another. Cain had killed his brother Abel. Lamech had killed a young man and bragged about it. And the earth had been filled with all kinds of violence. God had put the fear of humans into the animals, but now He had to put the fear of God into the humans lest they destroy one another. End of quote. These verses that I've just read, they're dealing with capital punishment. I don't know where you stand on that, but that's what these verses deal with. It has to deal with capital punishment. It has to deal with the death penalty. It has to deal with what we deal with those who take someone else's life. And what we see is that God instituted the death penalty. That's how God set things up in the new world order. That a new world order, order that if someone takes somebody's life, their life is to be taken. And I want to just point out three points. First of all, we see the law governing animals. We know that animals, they're important to earth and to man. They're important to the environment. They're important to nature. They were created for man. They're, they're a food source. But man is the highest creation. Man is the summit of God's creation. We're created in the image and likeness of God. But God says in His Word that if an animal attacks and kills a person, the animal is to be put to death. Exodus 21-28 When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox must be stoned and its meat may not be eaten, but the ox's owner is innocent. You still see that today, that if an animal attacks a child or attacks a person, a lot of times you see it with pit bulls and things of that nature, just, just violent animals. If they attack somebody, normally that animal is taken and put down. And we see that in the Bible. But second, the law governing murderers. Willful murderers are to face two judgments. I want you to see what Scripture says about capital punishment. First of all, God Himself will punish murderers. Look at the last part of verse 5. He says, I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. God says, I'm going to require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Here's what Matthew Henry had to say about this. He said, the righteous God will certainly execute justice for blood, though men cannot or do not. 
One time or other in this world or in the next, he will both discover concealed murders which are hidden from man's eye and punish avowed and justified murders which are too great for man's hand. Basically what he says, hey, if man cannot do it, I will do it. Whether it's in this life or in the next, God says, I will repay. And that's what God said about Abel. Your brother's blood is crying out to me for vengeance and I will repay. God's going to avenge the death of somebody, either in this life or in the life to come. It will not go unnoticed by God. But secondly, men are to execute justice upon murderers. Willful murderers are to be punished by judges and jurors of men. Look at verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his image. Again, Matthew Henry comments, By man shall his blood be shed, that is by the magistrate or whoever is appointed or allowed to be the avenger of blood. There are those who are ministers of God for this purpose, to be a protection to the innocent by being a terror to the malicious and evildoers, and they must not bear the sword in vain, according to Romans 13.4. Willful murder ought always to be punished with death. It is a sin which the Lord would not pardon in a prince, according to 2 Kings 24, verse 3 and 4, and which therefore a prince should not pardon in a subject, end of quote. So, willful murders are to be punished by judges and jurors of men, according to the government. That's what he's talking about. The government should have the death penalty to, to deal with those who commit willful murder. But a third thing I want us to notice. There are two reasons why murder is to be punished. First of all, man's value. Man is of the highest value he's made in the image of God. That, that's one reason murder should be punished. Man's been created in the image and likeness of God. And so think about this. To kill a person is to remove the image of God from the earth. Think about that. It's just like removing God from the earth. When a person is murdered, a part of God's own image is removed from the earth. In a sense, when a person is murdered and taken from the earth, there is less of God's image on the earth. All that, a per, all that the person could have contributed to society and the earth is lost forever. Think about it. That's one reason. We're created in the image of God and when you take that person's life, anything that they could have done, anything they could have contributed, anything they could have accomplished, it's been removed. Murder is a serious offense to God. We've been created in the image of God and if man is murdered, Justice is to be executed. The murderer is to be put to death. The death penalty is to be enacted. But here's the thing. Not only man's value, but man's purpose. Man has a purpose. Man's basic purpose goes back to what God told Noah. Repopulate the earth. Multiply, fill the earth. In other words, we're, we're, we're to keep reproducing people that can fellowship with God, worship God, and serve God. Now this doesn't mean that we're to overpopulate the earth, and, but simply we're to keep the earth populated. Think about that. That's part of why we're here, to keep the earth populated. But if the savagery of men eliminated the human race, there'd be no human beings left to fellowship with God. So the primary purpose of man is to continue in the human race, to continue producing and leading people to God. But if you start wiping people out and committing murder, you're doing away with people that can fellowship and worship God. 
Murder acts against the great purpose of man. It destroys human life. It eliminates a purpose, a person's fellowship, worship, and service of God upon earth. So, one quick thought. The matter of determining life and death is given to man only in an official or governmental capacity. A man doesn't have the personal right to take another man's life. In other words, I don't have the right just to go out and take somebody else's life. Only the government has the right to decide if a person is worthy of death. Now, let me just say this. I believe that if somebody's coming into our homes as an act of self-defense, we can protect ourselves. There's a difference. There's a difference. But for somebody to commit premeditated, willful murder, the government, the judicial system, is the only one who has the right to determine if that person deserves the death penalty. God made it clear in the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill. In other words, we can't just go around taking people's lives. The Bible is clear, however, that the punishment of the guilty is the role of the government. Romans 13, verse 1 through 4. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. Do you see that? Where does government come from? From God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to do con- to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant. Notice that government is God's servant. An avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Government is supposed to be God's servant to carry out God's will. Now, I know capital punishment can be a touchy subject for people, but God established it. He established it in the Old Testament. He established the governmental system. He established the death penalty. And let me just say personally where I stand, I, I believe there was a place for it. I believe if, if a person went out and deliberately committed premeditated murder, they found guilty, they need to get what's coming to them. And I'm recording this and it's going online. I believe they need to get what's coming to them. Let me read you what J. Vernon McGee, he, he's, he's a preacher from years ago, and he's, here's what he said. He said, I believe that capital punishment is scriptural and that it is, the, it is the basis of government. The government has the right to take a life when that individual has taken someone else's. Why? Well, I think it is quite obvious that God has ruled it so in order to protect human life. End of quote. It's to protect human life. He goes on to say this, and I quote, when a criminal knows that if he takes a life, his life is going to be sacrificed, then may I say to you, he'll think twice before he takes a life. I mean, it, it may not stop everybody, but if he knows, hey, if I take somebody's life, mine's going to be taken, he'll think twice about it. But he also says this. Also, there is an idea, and this is written back in 1991. Also, there is an idea today about getting a gun control law. May I say that the problem is not with the gun in the hand, it is with the heart inside the man. That was written back in 1991 in his commentary when he made that statement. And yet today we're still fighting over gun control laws and all that stuff. But here's the thing, it's not the matter of the weapon in the hand, it's the matter of the heart in the man. 
right? Because it don't matter if it's a knife, a gun, or anything. It's all about what's in the heart. Because you can take anything and make it a weapon. But if the heart's still wicked, you can take this right here and beat somebody senseless if the heart's wicked. It all comes down to the heart. But God established government. God put something in order. That if a man sheds another man's blood, the one who shed the blood, his blood is supposed to be shed as well. Again, I don't know where you stand. But God established it. And I believe we'd be better off in our world today if we got back to doing what God tells us to do. Amen. I, I, I know some people may say, well, preacher, we ought not to do that. Or preacher, that's a little harsh. And preacher, that's, that, that, that's, that's too cruel. But I believe if we did it God's way, it'd be a better way. There'd be a lot less going on in society today if we did it God's way. Amen. And I know people want to shout, well, preacher, what about God's grace? And what about God's love? And what about God's mercy? Well, Romans 13, that's in the New Testament with Paul about the government. About the sword of the avenger. That's in the New Testament. And that's about grace in the New Testament. It's a time of grace, but he's still talking about the government and the sword of the avenger. I have to close. But to live in the new world, Noah was going to need God's blessing. He was going to need God's instruction. He was going to need the government that God established. But he was also going to need God's covenant and God's promise. And I don't have time to get into that tonight, but God established a covenant with Noah and God put a rainbow in the sky and told Noah, never again will I destroy this world by a flood. And as I've already made reference to it as I opened up tonight, I've done seen pictures on Facebook this week. People put pictures on their rainbows in the sky this week. We have a promise that God will never destroy this world by a flood again. We have a promise from God that He will watch over us. Amen. He will protect us. He will protect us. And if we are His, He's coming back for us. And we're going to a new world. Better than what Noah lived in because the reality is we're living in the world that Noah began his life in. But we're going to a brand new world. A new heaven. A new earth. But God gave him a covenant. God gave him a promise. And here's the thing. God didn't lay down any conditions that men and women would have to obey. God simply stated the fact that there would be no more universal floods and from that day on, Noah and his family could enjoy life in the new world. There's coming a day that we're going to live in the new world and we're going to be able to live with God forever. Would you stand with me all over the house?